Hello and welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is the ongoing series called The Fountain of Youth. This is part six. The desire to look and feel young goes back a long way, as in all the way to the beginning. Death is our primary fear that drives so much other behavior and we will do anything to stave it off. Socrates, the father of Western philosophy said, what a disgrace it is for man to grow old without ever seeing the beauty and strength of which his body is capable. So this attitude might have made Socrates a good match for my fictional woman with the cursed bananas, although Socrates was recorded as being unattractive, so she may have swiped left and passed on him. If you doubt that we are chasing youth, just read or watch advertisements. Yesterday, I was on a treadmill chasing my own fountain of youth, and I could see a TV in the distance. Uh, FYI, for backstory, I've signed up for another Ironman way back in 2019 uh, before I realized that marathons and mileage on a bike would never fill the God-shaped hole in my heart, and the race has been punted twice during the COVID era, so I'm now swimming, biking, and running again, making me every bit the seeker of the people on the advertisements I'm about to judge. And of course, measure for measure will I be judged, as I've gone into in great detail elsewhere. But I'll circle back to my own hypocrisy in just a minute, after I recap the TV sequence that I must regurgitate for you now. The TV in the distance had a series of advertisements and infomercials. An infomercial with the late Larry King showed the incredible life-saving benefits of prostagenics, a prostate supplement. And like any good snake oil, having the letter X in the name goes a long way as many supplements go this route, especially those marketed to men who are either obsessed with muscles or strength or desperately trying to hang on to the glory days of youth, and that's most of us. Um, here's a sampling of X named supplements and companies and products that um, tell me, uh, that lead me to believe I may have eternal youth and eternal prime of my life. So there's Nugenics, there's Body Dynamics, there's No Explode, which is for nitric oxide, Explode, Nitroflex, Oxide Booster, Vapor X5, Extend, and Shotgun 5X. So that's just some of the names uh, of things that have X in the name. When I saw Prostagenics, I thought it's just such a good name for like a snake oil type of product. All of these X names sound really technical and they give me the uh, impression of like there's a deep science revelation that could very well conquer death maybe. Um, Cellucor C4 is a pre-workout that's literally named to sound like an explosive device made by a biomedical lab, Cellucor. C4 as an explosive. Then there are things like, there's pre-workout ones named things like Total War and Bucked Up with a picture of a deer with huge antlers. Um, and those sound like supplements that the Greek gods like Ares and Priapus would take. Um, except the Olympian gods don't need to supplement anything because they are myths that don't age. They are not real. They're not even written like they're real, like the Gospels were. Clearly, Jesus and the apostles lived in a specific time and place. Um, the Greek gods were obvious stories meant to match specific phases of life and seasons of the year and human experiences. But as men, 
today we would really like to be pinned to like certain gods as if they were it were a permanent buddy system so we could stay in our 20s and 30s forever and you know lift as much as we can and um, look as good as we can have veins pop out all over uh, the problem is the problem is this is that one day you have to switch from taking the pre-workout biotech chemistry elixir and then you have to switch to the please just keep me alive prostate health supplement type of elixir. So it talk about humbling, but it comes for us all sooner or later. And fortunately, there's a product for every age where we can stave off this ultimate fear of, of death. So, um, so that was the first one. It was prostogenics, but it reminded me of my age group where we're getting all these workout type of things. And it was interesting to see, you know, the older uh, advertisements where they're selling something else for someone trying to stave off this fear. Um, the next infomercial was an ad for a battery-powered device that sprays tanning dust onto skin. And apparently this was pretty much completely targeted to women. I didn't see any men on the infomercial. I guess I ran for a while because I, I could see this TV in the distance. Um, and I saw two infomercials. So the Breeze is the name of the device, and it showed these middle-aged to elderly women being transformed into young flowers of the field by an application of like orange dust. And it reminded me of when I spray painted my fence, or I should say um, stained it uh, with, a, with a tool, you know, where you spray it and it turns color. Uh, this was the same thing, but for skin faces. Uh, the ad itself was so airy and bright that I thought perhaps this infomercial had been recorded in the same room that F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote about in The Great Gatsby like a hundred years ago when Nick, the narrator, first goes to East Egg where Gatsby lives and realizes how the rich, young, and beautiful people live. And here's, a, here's the quote from the book in chapter one of The Great Gatsby where it says, The windows were ajar and gleaming white against the fresh grass outside that seemed to grow a little way into the house. A breeze blew through the room, blew curtains in at one end and out the other like pale flags, twisting them up toward the frosted wedding cake of the ceiling and then rippled over the wine-colored rug, making a shadow on it as wind does on the sea. The only completely stationary object in the room was an enormous couch on which two young women were buoyed up as though upon an anchored balloon. They were both in white, and their dresses were rippling and fluttering as if they had just been blown back in after a short flight around the house. So that was what the look and feel of this infomercial setting, um, that was exactly what it felt like. There was this airy, bright, youthful, lithe, supple, all of those words, everyone wearing white, um, light shining in all over, like a heavenly scene, kind of like what um, Nick, the narrator, says in The Great Gatsby. It's almost like he's describing some kind of angelic uh, scenario. However, the spraying of this paint on their faces seemed very unnatural amid this hypernatural setting, or if not heavenly, atmosphere of this uh, like white-clad studio. And so as the women sprayed the dust onto their faces, I, I eventually thought of the phrase, from dust you came into dust you shall return, but I never considered that the dust would be orange, pink, or pastel. So, very surprising. Um, Ash Wednesday, of course, say from dust you came and dust you shall return. That's a very different dust. They're not selling the breeze with that message. Uh, finally, uh, someone turned the TV to ESPN, 
And that's the channel that dedicates all of its time to celebrating youth and glory. Uh, the first advertisement that I saw was about low testosterone. And this happens all the time on evening news or on sports channels because they know men about middle age, 40s to 60s, to, well, lots of men w watching these. And the low testosterone ad had two aging legendary sports figures pitching the sale. So in, the, in these two uh, ex-athletes' life, they were in post-retirement leisure time. You, uh, they were having achieved so much success and notoriety through their physical prowess, but clearly not enough money to avoid getting lured into endorsements. I hate to say it, but they wouldn't be doing them unless that was the case. The athletes, they casually stroked golf balls down the driving range, looking confident and strong. Men on the driving range is a, is a sign of leisure, success, um, polo shirts, dress slacks, looking good, slim, um, waist pulled in, uh, you know, no saggy skin or anything. Um, their faces were slightly weathered from the march of time and, of course, their gritty play on the baseball and football fields. And it's almost like they're winking at you. Like, um, In fact, Sylvester Stallone uh, put out a magazine a few years back, and I saw an interview. It was called Sly, and it was for the middle-aged man. And it was kind of like he even said it was like a wink that we kind of know everything in life. We've been through it all. The magazine is meant for these men who are still... Uh, in they they're like virile, but they're they're older. <laughs> so, uh, but the two athletes in this ad were one of the greatest baseball sluggers. One was of my lifetime. Frank Thomas played for the Chicago White Sox, superstar, um, and you know just a hammer on the ball. He could uh, slam it out of the park. I remember going to a game and watching him hit one out, and it was just so cool. He was so big. Uh, everybody loved Frank Thomas, and. He was discussing the need for testosterone supplements with Doug Flutie. And Doug Flutie was the plucky underdog quarterback who threw arguably the greatest Hail Mary touchdown pass in history for Boston College. And then went on to a, a really, I, I think, great NFL career. You know, he was short, but he'd find ways to win. He just had this, like, you know, savvy way. Like I said, plucky underdog. That's kind of what he seems like. Um, so they're talking on the golf course. And they have this nonchalance and openness about aging and they're signaling that it's no big deal to admit that their bodies were changing and <laughs> sagging energy or muscles like that's normal that's okay um, this floundering virility in the bedroom did not get mentioned like there was no sense of um, uh, impotence or anything like that but it was very much between the lines and you could almost i was reading closed captioning so it's like you don't see the word flaccid anywhere, but there's this sense of that's what they're talking about. Your muscles are sagging. Everything's sagging. Um, the closed captioning read kind of like a parent talking to an adolescent about puberty. And paraphrasing the, mes the message, I read, I read it like this. I've seen this ad a few times, but it's like, hey, bud, hey, bud, it's, it's okay that you can't hit home runs and you can't drink hard and have sex all day anymore. You know, neither could we. But... That is, we couldn't until we started taking these pills and powders. And you can do it too, friend, with this product. There's like this, hey, bud, you know, put an arm around the guy, you know, they're in on the secret. I'm not. And I could be just like them. I could be in, I'm not in the Hall of Fame, but I, I, I could be like them, you know. So, of course, that's always how you sell things. Uh, so, in the 1990s, 
back in the 1990s, like 30 years ago, I feel like the snake oil and cure-all elixirs were not so dressed up and well-marketed. In fact, I think the 19th century hawkers of cure-alls, like you'd see in like Little House on the Prairie, where a man would show up in Walnut Grove and he'd have like these bottles which look like brown water whiskey, and uh, he would just get up on his wagon and start selling them and tell him it would it would heal your wounds, it would make you younger, it would um, your memory would be improved. All of these, I mean, it was just this amazing liquid. And of course, there is that. Uh, what if you believe something will do it? It will help you. You know, there's even when I I talk about like prayer or something like that. Those elements are truth. There's there's truth to that. When you that's why they do placebo tests and all this with drugs so that. You can find out, is it just the power of the mind over the body or is it actually working? So, um, of course, doubters would say that prayer and all that is just like a cure-all elixir, but we'll talk more about that later. Um, but I feel like the the charlatan in Walnut Grove or in, in the 1800s, 1900s, when people would come around and sell this, actually had a better story than what I saw in the 1990s when it was like coming back or I was just not paying attention. But... Um, there was such things as like horny goat weed and aphrodisiacs and not to mention the energy boosting ephedrine you could get everywhere and it didn't it not only sounded like snake oil but even looked like it so you could buy these things at the gas station either in a bathroom vending machine or discreetly at the register and there was like a courtesy at the checkout line where the cashier would kindly not make eye contact as you said uh, just the soda and the candy bar, uh, and then you could furtively snatch a packet of like horny goat weed and add it to the pile or uh, ephedrine or whatever. Like there was a bunch of these like things that you could just grab. <laughs> but today, uh, this the sale of uh, for anyone Saturday Night Live did an ad, uh, a spoof ad called Doctor Porkenheimer's Boner Juice, and. Um, that's like the perfect ad. It was one of my, the best Saturday Night Live episodes when, it, when Saturday Night Live was funny um, or even as in its late days when it was losing its humor. But um, this Dr. Porkenheimer's Boner Juice was playing on these ads like Viagra ads and all of those things and Cialis and showing how you had like this aphrodisiac horny goat weed kind of wrapped in very attractive marketing and they were just putting a, a name on it that actually matched what they were selling. So when they're selling testosterone boosters for men with legendary fatherly type ex-athletes doing the shilling, we're going uh, right back to that. And um, the other thing is in this series, I've talked about that reference in Exodus about boiling goats in its mother's milk as being like a difficult saying, one of the many difficult sayings of the Old Testament. Uh, I find it fascinating that the book of Exodus was prohibiting this Canaanite fertility rite or ritual that also involved goats, um, since we, which we can, you know, we consider this stuff to sound really archaic in the Old Testament or um, even the Greek satyrs were, or satyrs were goats, you know, they were considered very virile and um, always chasing the uh, other always just whatever sex it was all about sex you know so um, yet in our sophisticated enlightened time many people still take something called horny goat weed to preserve their youth and virility and it can be found in various supplements under more gentle names today so we haven't really changed that's always the funny thing we haven't changed at all human nature wise um, 
from biblical times or um, ancient uh, tribes, whatever, we, we're still doing these same things. We just call them different things and we dress them up to fit into the era that we're living in. So um, what this makes me realize as you watch these ads is like we all owe an apology to used car salesmen and because everyone knows that the used car salesman is trying to make a dollar and will try to squeeze blood from a turnip or more, more appropriately a contract out of a lemon. But the real snake oil salesmen are very polished and very smooth and it's very well thought out and they have terrific stories and targeting and know exactly which insecurities we are looking to feed. So what's interesting once again is that the Garden of Eden story can be seen here and I did you know that um, I, I actually didn't know this for a long time, but the word serpent could alternatively be translated as the shiny one. So the word serpent uh, can depends on how you translate it. But I've read things where it says it could also be just translated as the shiny one. And the shiny one is slippery and deceptive. So I think this that interpretation or translation would actually help people get over the stumbling block of the talking snake problem because you hear tons of um, younger atheists or people who are just kind of um, have given up on religion say, oh, I don't think the, the talking snake story makes much sense because when we're talking about something difficult like temptation and sin, we don't necessarily think of a serpent, um, but everyone, everyone knows someone deceptive or slippery and even deceptive and slippery people think they know someone else who's deceptive and slippery. So, and that is what the enemy really is. It's the slippery, deceptive one. And like in Little Red Riding Hood, of course, the wolf is very slippery and deceptive. And she even talks about when she's swallowed up by him, she's in this slimy, slippery, dark place. So, um, so the, but the snake, the serpent, works great for children and people who have returned like to faith because the understanding of the serpent is really understanding it as slippery and deceptive. Um, you know, yes, we have like this and this, um, a lot of us have a phobia of snakes. So that's why that animal works for the story so well, because they seem slippery and deceptive. I mean, they, they, um, even in the story where it says the serpent would eat dust after he's like um, caught by God, um, you know, he's going to eat death. He's, he's you know, the, the Adam and Eve are now condemned to die. The serpent like eats death. That's like his his role. That's the, the dust, you know. So um, his deceptive and slipperiness makes him um, just the perfect uh, temptation. Or, or And that's what you see really in these ads is, as I always say, the four D's, there's deception, diversion, division, and despair. And that's what the slippery one does to you. So, but I think for the fallen away or the ones who, the people who are reading um, Genesis literally, the idea of a talking animal makes them raise their eyebrows in doubt. Obviously, if you're going to read it completely literally like that, that's what's going to happen. Um, but if you read it as a slippery one, you look for the allegory. And then you, you just think of your own life of who has fooled you or things you have fooled yourself about. And that's what it's mostly about. Um, so the marketing of these supplements and, and whether it's prostagenics or nugenics or whatever NX you can think of, um, the marketing knows exactly which wound to poke for each of us. And we all have one or more of these wounds. We've been carrying along lies our entire lives or at some point we pick them up. Um, it could be that we are unattractive or we're stupid. 
um, or we have fears of powerlessness or shame or rejection or abandonment. And those things are in every single person somehow, some way they're there. Um, what we want to feel is loved and respected and healthy and safe. Like we want the safety, love, respect. Um, so the best way to sell something is, of course, to remind us that we are none of those things. We're not loved or respected or healthy or safe. And that our wound that we're, we're uh, the lie we're telling ourselves is still a major problem, but that we could get over that wound if we just bought or ingested a product. And so we want like a technique or a tool or something that can um, not just be a Band-Aid, but a healing thing altogether. Um, so that's exactly why you don't get like Super Bowl ads just simply showing Jesus on the cross for 30 seconds. It's just terrible for sales. Like, even though he is the only thing that actually can heal every single one of those insecurities and wounds. Um, if you're feeling unattractive or stupid or you feel powerless or shame or rejection, that's the answer. Uh, but you're not going to get that from someone who wants to sell you total war pre-workout um, powder. So... All right, so that's that's this TV and ads I want to just talk about briefly, but let's go back to Socrates for a moment, as he's perhaps one of the most admirable people to walk the earth. And by his own words, he felt that celebrating health and physical accomplishment while pursuing wisdom made for the most worthwhile pursuits. That would have been his highest good. Um, it, it seems difficult to disagree with for a modern person today. It's like um, he wrote that, what, 2,400 years ago, that's a long time ago, um, and he was about diet, health, exercise, and that's the same obsessions of so many right now, and along with knowledge and wisdom. So for a moment, I just want to consider like Jesus and Socrates as both of these men change the world, but in quite different ways. Um, one thing, the fact that Socrates was recorded as being unattractive is interesting to me. Someone felt the need to write down um, I guess just describing him, but that he was a squat, unattractive, barefoot man with bulging eyes, large lips, and a pot belly. Uh, we never hear anything about Jesus so much of his appearance as to whether he was handsome or what his eyes looked like. Um, every portrayal of him shows the effects of poverty and fasting, and rather than physical attributes, the one thing we know for sure is that he was universally depicted as having humility. There's not like physical features really ever described that I'm aware of, um, maybe I just haven't looked close enough, but, and the reason I'm bringing up Socrates here at the, near the end of this series um, on the Fountain of Youth is because there are similar parallels in the lives of him and Jesus, but Socrates saw like bodily health and wisdom as the heights of human pursuit, whereas Jesus advocated for humility and prayer with the body only needing its daily bread. So he was never big on food or, um, or of course, exercise. So. It's an interesting thing that um, food and all of those things is, is not a huge deal. Um, fasting is very different from dieting. So, um, you know, you don't fast to lose weight. You fast to give up something that you like to do for God. So there's a very different motive for it, or there should be. Um, intermittent fasting, of course, is to lose weight. If you're fasting for religious reasons, then it's you're giving up something, you're offering up something that you enjoy for God, which draws you closer it really does. It's um, probably the hardest thing for me to do. I can give up other things, um, but giving up um, Cinnamon Toast Crunch and those kind of things I struggle with because uh, I like to eat. I like to eat. I'm a, uh, like I said, modern gluttony American. That sums me up as where I'm at. Um, and I like to exercise, which makes me more hungry. Anyway, uh, 
So both, both of these men, Socrates and Jesus, both really chose to accept death and become martyrs, but the, the reasons were quite different. And on the night before he died, Jesus talked about drinking from the cup that symbolized his suffering. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, you know, he says, let this cup pass from, pass from me. He's asked, he's, this is most human moment to me, um, where he's saying, let this cup pass. Uh, is there any other way? And he says, but not my will, thy will be done. He's having this like, I swear, he's like showing us how to live right here through struggle. Um, because it's like he's teaching us, you know, I, I don't, anyway, the Garden of Gethsemane, you could think about for years and, and just, uh, just focus on that mystery all by itself. But it's a curious word choice about the cup, drinking from the cup. And that's all I want to talk about for this. Um, because 400 years earlier, Socrates chose to die by drinking from a literal cup of tea containing deadly hemlock. So um, Jesus talked about drinking from the cup, but his cup, uh, his trial and death was far more brutal and awful. Socrates' death came like a deep sleep, while Jesus' execution came in wave after wave of pain and abandonment. And at 70 year old, years old, um, Socrates was almost twice the age of Jesus, and his death happened kind of like a sophisticated modern euthanasia almost, where he was chilling with friends and giving a fine, like a speech. And, but Jesus accepted a much different cup, and it was not with one poison in it, but with every possible poison in it, and the poison being like um, the, every cruel and cruel and unusual thing men, people can do to one another. So the cup Jesus consumed contained all the ugliness of human sin. His, this in this case, is the metaphorical cup of um, all of the sin. So these cups could not be more different, but it's just interesting that they both talk about a cup and... Um, despite both cups leading to the same ending of death by execution. So Socrates gives a hopeful speech in the end with honest words about his uncertainty regarding the afterlife. And Socrates, of course, everything's written down by Plato or uh, I think like Xenophon or followers of him, kind of like he had his own father, followers um, like Jesus. And Socrates says at the end, the hour of departure has arrived and we go our ways. I to die and you to live, which is better, God only knows. And then he drinks the poison tea. He goes into death almost fearlessly, it seems, and those around him are struggling more than Socrates himself. Um, it is interesting. He, he's kind of talking about like a monotheistic God there as well. Um, he doesn't say, you know, which is better, only Apollo knows, or only he's saying just God only knows. Of course, who knows what the translations uh, for some of these, but... He also talks about the hour of departure has arrived. So there's a similarity. Jesus says that, you know, the hour has come. My hour has not yet arrived or my hour is not yet here. Um, so just some of the wording cup and hour are interesting between the two of them. Um, but what the interesting thing, Jesus, when on the other hand, he's abandoned and he's in this suffocating agony for hours. He's not surrounded by friends. He's not like comfortable. Um, he doesn't have a speech. But instead, he has the last seven words from the cross, which is actually like the last seven sentences that he says. And that includes his prayers for his tormentors. So he's, he's willing to um, say, forgive them for they know not what they do, even as he's, um, you know, literally dying, hanging there. And he gives total certainty about the afterlife. Unlike Socrates, Socrates says, I don't know what's going to happen. He's, he does say something like, wouldn't it be great to go and see 
some of the, gr the, the great heroes or um, family, you know, in the underworld when he gets there, because that was kind of the Greek ideas that the underworld, everyone's just staring up at the living. There's some pictures about this and everyone in, in the underworld wants to be alive because that's where the action is. So Jesus is more like, no, you want to be in the afterworld. That's where heaven is. It's a thousand, a million times better, infinitely better than here. We're just in this temporary state right now. Um, so, and what Jesus does is gives total certainty about the afterlife. And he does this right to the good thief next to him on the cross where he tells the thief, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So it's, it's a completely different, uh, uh, mentioning of what's going to happen. Like Socrates is like, which, uh, God only knows is it better to be alive or dead. Um, and Jesus, of course, um, as, as God himself is saying, you will be with me in paradise to this person with uh, total certainty. There's no, no question. I mean, whenever Jesus says truly or truly, truly, or amen, amen, or verily, verily, I say unto you, depends on which one you're reading. He's always saying something like he's doubling down on it and saying, this is very true. Believe me when I say this, like, um, so these two endings are really only the same in the martyrdom, but not at all in the details or the message or the expectation of what happens afterwards. So, so it makes sense that Socrates with that attitude, just like us today, if you don't believe there's eternal life or possibility of it, then of course the here and now is important and, and you want to make the best of it. So that, you know, how did Socrates feel about the self and the body and growing old? Well, his own words, or it was the words of his student Xenophon who wrote the words about having your own, you want to see your body in its best form. It's, it's, he said, it's a shame if you grow old and don't see how um, beautiful and strong your body can be. It, it tells us what Socrates may um, have, he might not have fully bought into the whole grain of wheat idea that though a grain of wheat falls to, uh, if, it, if it doesn't die, it doesn't do anything. It, like a grain of wheat must die in order to bring life. Um, the, uh, Socrates was a caretaker of his body, kind of a lover of exterior beauty to a sense, even though he's described as not being attractive. Um, it's kind of like the ultimate uh, slam by somebody who wrote it about him. But um, he's, it's just interesting because Socrates is a man who spent his days at the gym and arguing about wisdom. And, and at, you know, the Socratic method is famous for him asking questions, which interestingly, Jesus asked tons of questions as well. So there's, there's that similarity as well. But um, frankly, it sounds like a great life. I mean, um, Socrates is like, he's kind of like lifting weights, uh, praying or meditating and doing these intellectual pursuits all the time. It's like, sign me up. I think that sounds wonderful. Like years ago, though, years ago, a realization dawned on me that Jesus never attended a gym. He would not have been a member of a fitness club. I, I just can't see that. And there's not one parable about lifting rocks on leg day or running a 10K. And he never advises anyone about a low carb diet. In fact, he's always talking about bread and in particular that he is the bread of life, particularly when he creates the institution of the Eucharist. Um, but Socrates is known to have spent much of his time at a gym and I'm just guessing here, but Socrates, even the sculptures, you'll see him. It's likely he was, he was kind of jacked if he spent all his time at the gym. He probably wasn't taking total war pre-workout, but I'm sure if he was in there all day, uh, lifting, 
talking, um, you know, about uh, f- philosophical things. And <laughs> there's some guys like this, even at the gym, you can see who are there all the time. And they're really kind of like, uh, they seem pretty cool because they're in ex- extremely good shape. And they are, um, yeah, they're a lot of more smart. And they're uh, like guys you admire because they are physically um, well-formed and in the prime of their life. And so maybe Socrates had like sweet traps and triceps, you know, like those people you see in the gym. They sometimes these guys, they carry around a gallon of water and they will grunt while they bench press like six plates uh, on this, you know, three on each side of the bar. And uh, alternatively, or the opposite of that is Jesus, who's often portrayed as a thin, nearly sickly looking man. And the idea of him even entering the gym to exercise is laughable. There's just no way Jesus would be a gym member, but he'd probably be like someone who came in and went over to the treadmill and just walked and kind of looked around and left after 20 minutes. That's kind of my impression. Is like he wouldn't be the one exalting himself in the gym. He'd be like the one wearing sweatpants and kind of hiding. And I just, that's what I see is, uh, you know, when you go into the gym, there's people who are there to be seen. And, you know, I don't want to be one of those people, but sometimes I wonder if I am or I'm doing it without realizing it. So I laughed about this when I thought, oh, Jesus wouldn't go to the gym. And then the sense of humor wore off on me because I abruptly stopped laughing when I realized I stumbled across a problem. I realized that every time I go to the gym, I'm not dying to self. I'm not doing that at all. In fact, at the gym, I'm watering and fertilizing my wheat plant as if I were going to live forever. I'm supposed to be letting the seed die and fall to the ground, but I'm spending lots of time on a dry land version of the fountain of youth. Every moment spent at the gym is not really living in line with the gospel. Why? Because the gym is all about me. And truly, most um, attending the gym have vanity and lust like scribbled all over our, our, our bodies. So uh, then I realized, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, crap, I'm the woman with the cursed bananas. I, I bet you, you probably didn't wonder how this all tied together, right? But I I wondered the same thing, and that's why this one's so long, because I'm tying a bunch of things together or creating more uh, of a weaved conspiracy here than I thought. But, I mean, here's here's the thing. I enjoy the gym. I like going to the gym. But as I imagine I'm aiming to live like a Christian life, I'm fooling myself. The, The trick I always forget is that just when I think I've escaped the slippery one or the devil, that's when he's probably steering me exactly where he wants me to go. So... It's best for me to assume that he is somehow tempting me and I need to pray for God's mercy. And since I always need help, it never hurts to ask for the angels and saints to join me or ask to Mary Mary to intercede and to crush his nasty head with her heel or his uh, heel with her head. I don't know, whatever. Um, The spiritual combat that we all have to face has far better moves and more skill than professional wrestling or ultimate fighting championship even combined if you took both of those. Um, So it's wise for me to call in the whole crew, even if it's only a false alarm in the end. I mean, even if it's only a cat stuck in a tree for me, I call in the fire department, the ambulance and the police. And to, to ask for God's will to be done often requires it, especially when my own will wants attention. And that's uh, why when I go to the gym now, I think about this because I'm doing this for myself. What am I saying? Well, my life is about me, and that's the problem we'll talk about in the last part.